You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. My name is Jamin. If you're new here, uh, welcome. I'm one of the pastors. If you're watching online, welcome. Thanks for joining us. I want to start by making an announcement about a conference we have coming up this weekend here at our church. It's called the One Kingdom Conference. It's the first annual theological conference that Citizens is hosting. It's been put on uh, by, uh, largely led out by Taryn Mays, who oversees our training. Yes, praise God for her and her gifts. Uh, Really, really excited for this weekend and would encourage you to come. It's Friday and Saturday. It's going to be on kingdom theology, what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God, and really working around the five values that we have here as a church. That'll include breakout sessions on Saturday, uh, and I'm excited about those. I'm also really excited about our keynote speaker for the conference. His name's Dr. Jonathan Pennington. He's a professor at Southern Seminary. He's brilliant, he's pastoral, and he will be a blessing uh, to our church. And so you were handed one of these on your way in. It's got a QR code, and you can... uh, do the camera thing? With that. <laughs> That's not the way to say it. You can use this to register for the uh, conference online, even if all you can make is Friday night to come and hear from Dr. Pennington and then worship with us Friday night. would encourage you to do so. This morning, we're going to continue in our uh, wisdom series. We are nine weeks in to our series, Wisdom and Wonder. And I just want to answer a question and give all of our time this morning to answering this question. What would it sound like for the person of wisdom to talk to each type of fool. Now, if you've missed some of the sermons from the last few weeks, you might feel a little lost in that. Uh, You can catch those online. But, But here's to say it another way. What would Jesus, who is wisdom personified, what would Jesus say to the stubborn? What would Jesus say to the sluggard, to the simple, and to the scoffer? Uh, Hopefully you've noticed, but as we've approached wisdom in this series, uh, we have started by trying to build a biblical foundation, a theological foundation upon which uh, a growing wise can, can, can stand. And so there will be Sundays coming where we talk wise parenting, and Sundays coming where we talk about wisdom and money or wisdom and words or wisdom and work and all of that. But we want those to stand on a, a biblically faithful foundation. And so here's what that foundation has sounded like so far. The definition of wisdom is wisdom is living in God's world, in God's way. Wisdom has a posture it's low. We, come, we become wise through humility. Wisdom has a pace. It's slow. We become wise over time. Wisdom has a person. It's Jesus. We become wise in relationship with him. Uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and that's not being so afraid of life that we ignore God. It's not being so afraid of God that we run from him. Fearing the Lord is I'm so taken with God's greatness and grace that I move towards him with all of my life. And that moving towards him makes us wise. That was the first four weeks of our series summed up together. And then we spent two weeks uh, seeing something that Proverbs does that has just been so convicting and so helpful at the same time. Proverbs says part of becoming wise is learning how to spot foolishness. And the most important place to be able to spot it is when it's in us, when it's in me. In fact, Proverbs will say that foolishness might not come out of your life the same way it comes out of my life. It names four different types of fools. It says that there's a kind of fool that's the stubborn and one that's the simple, and one that's the sluggard, and another that's a scoffer. And so we spent two weeks defining them. Who are they? How do you spot them? And then most importantly, is any of it in my life? And then the last two weeks have both been on Jesus as wisdom personified. Wisdom uh, has a person. It's Jesus. We grow wise in relationship with him. And last week, Mike showed us that the wisdom of God, uh, that Jesus is the wisdom of God, and he's worth following. 
even if it appears foolish to everyone else. Two weeks ago, Tamarcus walked us through Proverbs 31 and showed us ultimately how that chapter is inviting us to wed wisdom, to be in relationship with wisdom, and that means relationship with Jesus. I just, for the record, I thought both men did a wonderful job. It's a gift of the church that, we, that, we, uh, that they're here and they use their gifts. In fact, two weeks ago I came when Ty was preaching and I sat right there at the 1115 with my eight-year-old daughter. And as Tamarcus was preaching, I would amen or I would respond out loud like some of you do, like very few of you do. <laughs> um, and at one point he said something that was just so good and true and beautiful that I amened really loud. And my daughter sitting next to me elbowed me in the ribs. <laughs> and she looked me in the eyes and she goes, Dad, it's not your turn to preach. <laughs> and it, um, it made me wonder if maybe she's ever done that to you and that's why you're so quiet. I don't know. <laughs> but as I think back on the last four weeks, you know, two weeks on the types of fools, two weeks on Jesus as wisdom personified, I got a sense that maybe there's some more work to do. And, and that work is by tying those together and just want to simply ask the question, if Jesus is the person of wisdom and there are four types of fools, what would Jesus say to each type of fool? Um, part of what happened as I personally walked through the types of fools is um, I heard the stubborn described, and, and maybe this is true for you, or I heard the sluggard described, and I, and I saw myself, right? And it gave me language for brokenness in my life that, that maybe I didn't know was there. I'd call by a different name. Like, I've been a Christian a really long time, and what I'm really comfortable with is I'm really comfortable thinking about my relationship with God in categories of obedience and sin. I am less familiar thinking about my relationship with God in categories of wisdom and foolishness. And so when you add kind of that other lens and, and, and you see there's different types of fools and, and you look at God's word and he names foolishness, what I saw is I saw things in my life that were named foolishness that maybe I'd given another name. This isn't the point, but it's really important to use the words God uses about our lives, especially important to use God's words about our problems to give the names that God gives, to call foolishness foolishness and not anything else. So there were things in my life that I, might, that I would have said, oh, that's just personality. That's just who I am. That's just my temperament. And then God's word says, no, that's foolishness. That's stubbornness. That's being simple. That's being a sluggard. And, and here's, the, here's the, the point. If I am calling personality what God calls foolishness, then I will miss wisdom. But if I use God's words, then I will then use God's resources. And if I name it foolishness, then I will seek the resources of God's grace and wisdom in Jesus. And then and only then do I have a shot to change and to become wise. So what we've said is the stubborn, the simple, the scoffer, the sluggard, they all need a Savior, and that's Jesus. And so when I ask this morning, what does that look like? Dig into that. What does that actually mean? What kind of, if Jesus had a conversation with each type of fool, what would that conversation sound like. And the good news is we don't have to guess at that. Jesus in his time on earth was surrounded by people, which means he was surrounded by all types of fools. And I want to look at four conversations he has with four types of fools. And it's not necessarily that each person matches the type perfectly, but, but seldom does that happen in our lives, right? Seldom do we check every single box. There's just a little bit of a kind of foolishness that's coming out in our lives. And we want to see what Jesus says. So we'll start with the stubborn. What does Jesus say to the stubborn. Would you look at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 40. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha, she's the stubborn, at least in this moment, 
welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? And then she commands Jesus, tell her then to help me. In this short interaction, we see stubbornness coming out of Martha's life. It's not that she stays that way. It's not that she's perpetually foolish. But in this scene, her interaction with Jesus, her interaction with her circumstances is marked by stubbornness. Remember with me what Proverbs says about the stubborn. Let's refresh just a bit. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The stubborn, which Proverbs just calls the fool, they are right in their own eyes. That's who they are. If the stubborn had a life motto, it's I am right, you are wrong. And you see that here with Martha. Uh, Martha is convinced Jesus is coming over, Jesus comes and all of his disciples come, and Martha is convinced that all of her serving is the right way to welcome Jesus. She never pauses to question whether or not maybe she's wrong and Mary's doing the right thing. She's convinced her actions are the righteous ones. She doesn't come to Jesus and say, hey, I noticed Mary is sitting at your feet. I'm the one that's doing all the actual hosting. Which one of us is honoring you most? No, she already assumes she knows that answer. Why does she assume that? Because the stubborn are quick to speak and slow to understand. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. So like the stubborn, she is quick to speak and slow to listen. She is not in this moment considering, like we said a couple weeks ago, she's not considering maybe there's something about godliness in my sister's life that I need to encounter in order to grow. No, she says, my sister needs to be more like me. And that erupts, finally, into this emotionally charged conversation with Jesus. Remember something about the stubborn. The stubborn are easily offended. Proverbs 12, 16, the vexation of a fool is known at once but the prudent ignores an insult. Here, Martha is easily offended. She hasn't been insulted, but if she was, she would not have ignored it. She's angry. She feels slighted. Imagine with me how this actually went down. If we just infuse the humanity in this. Um, Everyone comes to her home, and Martha is serving. Maybe she's a gifted host. She wants her home to be hospitable, all good and godly things, not to mention Jesus is there. And I'm sure it's a ton of pressure trying to host Jesus, right? Things get busy. It says she's distracted with much serving. Why is she distracted with much serving? Well, there's a lot of people there. There's much serving to do, like the food and wine. They don't serve themselves, right? Someone has to do it. And then at some point in all that, she just becomes overwhelmed. At some point in all the busy, she thinks, where is Mary? Like, what is she doing? She should be helping. She left me to do this all alone. And so she feels insulted. She's offended. She walks by and she sees Mary sitting at Jesus's feet and she rolls her eyes. She scoffs. She judges her. She compares herself to her sister. I am right. She is wrong. And her vexation, her agitation grows. And before she even opens her mouth, foolishness has already taken over in the emotional climate of her heart. Feeling overwhelmed, hear me, feeling overwhelmed by task is a natural part of being human. I experience it every single day. But instead of responding to that feeling in a wise way, like, Lord, help me, Lord, give me your peace, she responds in a stubborn way, and it sounds like this, it's someone else's fault I feel this way. It's Mary's fault I feel the way I feel to the point where she doesn't even confront Mary. She does what we often do when we're offended by someone, and we go and tell someone else about it first. 
And see this. She's so provoked, she actually confronts Jesus. Her offense around Mary becomes accusation against Jesus. Don't you care, Lord? Then she gives him a command. Jesus, tell Mary to be more like me. Jesus is the teacher. That's what he's there to do, to teach. And then Martha tries to teach the teacher. Why? Because remember, the stubborn assume the posture of teacher even when they're not invited, even when they're not asked to. So she comes to Jesus and starts a fight because the stubborn are quick to quarrel. Do you not care? Tell her then to help me. And the house isn't huge, so she probably actually makes a scene. The room goes quiet, and then maybe a few people just awkwardly leave. Party foul, right? You see stubbornness coming out of her life in all different ways. What does Jesus say to that? What does Jesus say to the stubborn? How does the person of wisdom respond to the type of fool that is easily offended, that is quick to speak and slow to listen? Well, here's what he says, verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, remember that. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Would you see something? How many times does Jesus say Martha's name? Twice. Do you know what a repeated name means in that culture? Martha, Martha. Commentator says it this way. The double address indicates caring emotion. It's like saying, dearest Martha, Martha who I love. Jesus loves her, and so he addresses her in love. And it's not what we expect, right? She rebukes and then commands our Lord. I mean, probably interrupts his teaching. How dishonoring that must have been. And so what you expect is verse 41, the Lord answered her, you fool, fool. Instead, you get Martha, Martha. It's caring emotion. It's Martha who I love. What does Jesus say to the stubborn? He says this. I love you. I love you. Here's something. The invitation, and we cannot miss this, friends. The invitation to become wise is through love, the love of Jesus that changes us. What will rescue us from our foolishness is nothing short of the love of a Savior who can see our foolishness and love us at the same time. Jesus communicates love to Martha. He says, I love you to the stubborn. And then he says this, you're troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary chose the best portion. It will last forever. What does he say to the stubborn? He says, I love you. And then he says this, release control. Release control. He tells her she's anxious and troubled about many things. When you're wise in your own eyes, when you think you see everything right, when I think I see everything right, I am right, you are wrong. What happens for those who are wise in their own eyes is... is uh, Stubbornness believes it is in control beyond what it can actually control. I believe I'm in control beyond what I can actually control. And where my belief about what I can control meets the reality of all that I can't control, I freak out. I'm worried. I'm anxious. I judge other people. I get all spun up. I vexate. So Jesus says, I love you. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Release control. He tells her, you're worried about many things, many good things. One thing matters most. Mary chose it, and then Jesus does something. He flips her command on its head. She comes to him and says, tell Mary to be more like me. And Jesus, in gentle words, says, be, be more like her. Release control. Don't be wise in your own eyes. I love you. 
sit at my feet. What the stubborn need to hear over and again is Jesus loves you. Also, you're not in control. Uh, being wise in your own eyes will make you miss what matters most. What would Jesus say to us in our stubbornness? He would say, I love you, but if you are not regularly sitting humbly before me, submitting to me, you will live a life where you are slow to listen, easily offended, quick to quarrel, forever on your feet, really busy working and really busy judging and really busy getting really offended. Just sit down. Just sit down. I love you. Choose the portion you can keep. Release control. To the stubborn, Jesus says, I love you. Release control. What would Jesus say to the sluggard? Look at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. We'll be brief here. Jesus is in the middle of ministry. He just got done teaching. And then he meets a man. He has a conversation with the rich, young sluggard. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Verse 21. Underline it if you do that kind of thing. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Remember the sluggard, what the proverb says about the sluggard in verse 13, 4, or chapter 13, verse 4, it says the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The sluggard is the person who refuses to put in the work required to become wise. Um, they are the person who refuses to put in the grace-driven effort. I'm not saying earn God's love, but they refuse to put in the grace-driven effort to actually become godly. They desire, it says, and they get nothing. Well, why do they desire and get nothing? Why is their soul not satisfied? Because they have a deeper desire for something else. It's a deeper desire for comfort. The sluggard always goes with their gut, and their gut is always going towards comfort, we learned. So a man comes to Jesus looking for life, looking to become wise, looking to make sure he's on the path. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking for truth. He's asking for wisdom. How do I live in God's world, God's way? But not just that. How do I live in God's world and God's way in a way that I am with God forever? What a great question. What a humble question. And to be fair, there's a lot about this guy's life that doesn't match the description of sluggard that we find in Proverbs. He works hard. He lists the commandments he's kept, and it's really impressive. He's got a great resume, but Jesus sees something, apparently. And so he says something to him. Go, sell all you have, and give to the poor. Proverbs 6.10 teaches us so important about the sluggard, and, and it has a way of kind of broadening the symptoms so that we can see ourselves. Proverbs 6.10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. My favorite Proverbs commentator says this about the sluggard, about this verse. He does not commit himself to a refusal, but deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. One of the signs of the sluggard is that their life is marked by small surrenders in the wrong direction. A little sleep a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And it seems that what Jesus knows about this man is that he had done that. 
He had a lifetime before this life, this moment of meeting Jesus, he had a lifetime of small surrenders in the wrong direction, small surrenders away from God. He had surrendered ground specifically in his heart to his money, to his things. And listen, money, like many good things in life, is a fine servant. It's a terrible master. And here's what's true. He loved his money more than God. His money was his master. And how it works is he did not decide in this moment, oh, I love my money more than God. What happened is he decided over several small, unseen, compromised moments in his heart. So what does Jesus do? Jesus invites him into a bold surrender towards God. Sell all you have. He doesn't say that to every wealthy person he meets, but to this guy, knowing what's in his heart, he invites a bold surrender towards God, sell all that you have in hopes of exposing all the small surrenders he had made away from him. Sell all you have, follow me, and the man walks away. Like the sluggard, when faced with the hard decision to get up and walk the path, he stays in his bed, he stays with comfort, he stays with the thing that he has made his God, which are his things. So what does Jesus say to the sluggard? If this is him, if that's who he is, if there's at least that part in his life of the small surrender in wrong direction, what does Jesus say? Verse 21, and Jesus looked at him, loved him. Looking at him, loved him. What a gift that Mark gives us a window into the heart behind what Jesus is saying. Looking at him, he loved him. It does not read, looking at him, he judged him. Looking at him, he scoffed at his foolishness. Maybe you'd expect to to read, looking at him, Jesus is righteously angry that this guy could love things more than God. Righteously angry that he would dare to hold on to his things when God has given him everything he has. Looking at him, he loved him. And if we take Jesus' heart and put it into words, what does he say to the sluggard? I love you. I love you. What, What the small surrender of the sluggard evokes in the heart of Jesus is love. The invitation, hear it again, the invitation to become wise is through love. It's the love of Jesus that changes us. What will rescue us from our foolishness is nothing short of the love of Jesus that can see our foolishness and love us all at the same time. Out of that love, he also says this, I'm all you need. I love you. I'm all you need. Sell all you have. Give to the poor. And what? Follow me. Come with me. Be with me. Learn from me. He offers him a place. In place of the man's wealth, he offers him the treasure of Jesus' presence, which is more costly than gold. It's more precious than silver. It's sweeter than honey, Psalm 19 says. What does Jesus say to the sluggard? He says, I love you. I'm all you need. You see what the sluggard needs? What he really needs is something compelling enough, powerful enough to wake them from their sleep, to get them out of bed, to shake them from their idol of comfort. The sluggard doesn't need, first and foremost, to grow in discipline. The sluggard needs a change of affection. They need the expulsive power of a love that they will actually sacrifice for, to love something that they will surrender for in the right direction towards God. Jesus says to the rich young sluggard, follow me. You cannot keep your money, but you can keep me. Invest your life in loving something that will never fade. And what Jesus would say to us, to the small surrenders in our life, I love you, I'm all you need. Turn from your small surrenders and surrender to me. To the stubborn, he says, I love you, release control. To the sluggard, he says, I love you, I'm all you need. What does Jesus say to the simple? In John 21, Jesus has a conversation with Peter. Peter is the simple, and Jesus responds to the simple But we need the backstory so that we understand what's happening. In Matthew 26, 31 through 35, Jesus had just had communion for the first time with his disciples. And he turns to them and he tells them some hard news about what's about to happen. Jesus said to them, tonight, 
all of you will fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He doubles down. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. In this moment from Peter's life, we see the type of foolishness called simple. Remember, the simple uh, are those whose lives are marked by a childishness that wisdom should have worked out over time but hasn't. It's, so it's a naivety, it's impulsiveness, it's being impressionable, and all of that that is normal in the life of a child has persisted into adulthood. So Proverbs 14, 15 says, the simple believes everything. Proverbs 1.32 says the simple are killed by their turning away. There is no depth to their belief is what we learned. There's no long obedience in the same direction. So the simple know where the path of wisdom is. They know how to find it, but they never stay on it. They find it and then they leave. They're drawn away by anything and everything that sounds better, that sounds more comfortable, that sounds more believable. Belief has not made it past their ears down to their heart. And so they're drawn away by anything that sounds sweet. That sounds more appealing. Now, you don't see every description of the simple in Peter. He doesn't check every box. But, but if you know anything about his life, if you know anything about his biography, his testimony, if you will, his life is actually filled with these moments where his belief is not as deep as he thought it was, where there's a, a shallowness to his belief. You remember, um, he's the one who gets on the water, and shortly after, he's the one who falls in the waves. He's the one who confesses Jesus is the Christ, Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16. Shortly after, he's the one who's rebuked for telling Jesus what kind of Christ he can and can't be. And the saddest example of this is what we just read. Jesus says, you will turn from the path. All of you will fall away. And then Jesus quotes the Bible to prove it. Strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. That's Zechariah. And Peter stands to his feet. Not me. And then he turns it into a competition, which is weird. Even if all the others fall away, he's like looking around the room. He's like, I could, I could see it from them, but not from me. That had to be awkward for John, right, or Matthew. I will never fall away. Nothing, gosh, nothing in him thought. You know, the walk on the water didn't go well for me. Uh, rebuking Jesus the last time didn't, didn't go well. E even still, he's in this place of perpetual simplicity, not the good kind where he overestimates the depth of his belief. He doesn't consider that maybe he's not as strong as he thinks he is. Uh, remember, it reminds me of what we learned about how the simple responds to correction. Proverbs 22.3, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So Jesus says specifically to Peter, you're going to have three chances to affirm your love for me every time you're going to deny me. Peter doubles down, never. If I have to die, I will never deny you. Jesus was right, and Peter was wrong. We know what happened just a few verses later in verses 69 through 74. A servant girl comes to Peter and says, hey, I think, I think you're one of Jesus's. And he goes, no, I don't know that man. And then another person comes and says, no, no, you, you talk like him. I can tell by your accent that you belong to him. And he says, I don't, I don't know that man. And then a group of people come and says, no, 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 we saw you with him. We know that you're one of his. And he curses. And then he won't even say his name. He just says, I don't know the man. And denies him three times, three denials. And then the rooster crows. Now, listen. I think we can all understand not wanting to be crucified, right? I think we can all understand the fear 
of an oppressive empire who wants to kill you for loving God. But that's not the point. That's not Peter's problem. The problem was his foolish, simple overestimation of the strength of his conviction. The problem is that he was so sure it wouldn't happen. He was so sure his belief was deeper. He was so sure that he was wiser than everyone else and stronger than everyone else. And look, I think maybe part of the struggle for the simple, would you hear this? Part of the struggle for the simple is that those of us who see simple in our lives, we don't count the cost of having deep belief. You know when it's really easy to claim that you won't deny Jesus? When you're in a room full of people not trying to kill you for following Jesus. And in that room, Peter's faith looks great. He's loud. He sounds righteous, preachy even. But by the fire, peppered with questions that could get him arrested or worse, here's something about the simple. For the simple, belief changes as soon as the circumstances are different. It's really easy to pose. It's really easy to posture. It's really easy to pretend to be better and and, and have deep belief and to be stronger when we're in a room full of Christians where faithfulness costs nothing. But what about when the room isn't full of Christians? What about when the room is full of temptation? Things that you could give into and only God sees. Remember, the simpler drawn away by the appeal to shallow appetite? What about when the room is is full of the shattered pieces of a really difficult relationship and following Jesus means, hey, stay and let's pick all this up together. No, I would rather avoid the work and I'd rather stay in the shallow place. The confession, friends, can sound so courageous until the circumstances change and the confession comes with a cost. And when the confession comes with a cost, what the simple do in their words or maybe just in their actions is they say, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. That's what Peter does. What does Jesus say to the simple, to the one who's on the path, off the path, to the one who who tries to present as being deeper, stronger, better than they are? John 21, 15 through 19. It is my favorite passage in all of Scripture. I can't talk about it without crying. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, uh, Jesus dies, raises again, He makes breakfast for his disciples. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Remember that name, son of John. Simon, son of John. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Listen to this. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. He makes breakfast for his disciples. They're eating together. Uh, Apparently, they haven't talked about Peter's denial until this moment. They've seen each other, but they've never talked about it. Jesus looks at Peter, and he responds to the simple. And what does he call him? Simon, son of John. The, The last time he called him by that name is when he called Peter to follow him. So he goes back to their earliest moments of of life together. Then he asks him three times, do you love me? How many times did Peter deny him? How many times did Jesus invite Peter to reaffirm his love? 
He asks him, do you love me more than these? And Peter won't say, I love you more than everyone else. He won't do that again. He has been humbled by his failure. His posture is low. He appeals instead to Jesus. He does not say, I am strong. He does not say, I am better. He does not say, my belief is deep. He says, Jesus, you know. You know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus responds each time by inviting him back into relationship and back into ministry. Feed my sheep. You see what Jesus is doing. It's remarkable. He's restoring him. He walks with him back into his failure to forgive his failure, but not just that, but to restore his future. And he says, when you're older, they will threaten you again. He tells them about his death. When you're older, they will threaten you again, and on that day you will give your life. Your faith will have the kind of death that is willing to die for me then. Jesus loves him. And you see Jesus' love for him all over this conversation. What you expect, goodness, Verse 15, you expect, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you fool. You thought you were better than you actually are. And he looks around at everyone else and says, remember when he said that he would not fall away, and he did? What you expect is, is you expect Jesus to respond, harsh maybe. Luke says that when Peter denied Jesus the third time, Jesus looked at him. Meaning, Jesus was close enough to watch the whole thing, to watch Peter betray him, to disown him. By that time, Jesus' eyes were already swollen from the punches, but even through swollen eyes, he sees well enough to watch his best friend strike him in the heart. And what you would think is, you don't come back from that. You are forever known as the one who thought his faith was deep, but he couldn't even make it past a few questions. Forever known as the disciple who had great potential but shallow faith. And that's exactly what would have been Peter's story. But God. But Jesus, rich in mercy, looks at him and says, I'm not done with you. I have plans for you. Your shallow belief is not the end of your story. What mercy. What does Jesus say to the simple? He says, I love you. I love you. Hear it again. The invitation to become wise is through love. The love of Jesus changes us. What will rescue us from our foolishness is nothing short of the love of our Savior who can see our foolishness and love us at the same time. What he says to the simple is, I love you. And then out of that love, he says this, follow me. Here's what I love. For the simple, uh, Jesus makes it really simple. He says, follow me. I love you. Follow me. Be faithful. Stay on the path. If there is a verse the simple need to memorize and recite every day, it's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Stay on the path. Look to Jesus. When you hear something that sounds better, it's a lie. Follow Jesus. When the confession is costly, it's worth it. Follow Jesus. When you feel like you've failed too many times, he loves you. Follow Jesus. What does he say to the simple? I love you. Follow me. To the stubborn, he says, I love you, release control. To the sluggard, he says, I love you, I'm all you need. To the simple, he says, I love you, follow me. What in the world would he say to the scoffer? You remember the scoffer is the most destructive, devastating form of foolishness? Well, we see in Acts chapter 9, an example. But Saul still breathing threats and murder. That's what he's doing. Saul is breathing threats and murder against who? Against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Proverbs 21, 24 says, scoffers the name of the arrogant one who acts with pride. Proverbs 29, 8 says, scoffers set a city aflame. Scoffers hate God and hurt people. And that's what Paul's doing here in Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul's his Hebrew name, Paul's his Greek name. Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. A chapter earlier, he helps facilitate the execution of Stephen, and that led to the very first mass persecution of Christians in history. And Paul wants the church to burn. That's what's true. He hates God and hurts people. He would not have said he hates God, but Jesus says that much when he says, you persecute me. And what does Jesus say to the scoffer? Look at verse 3. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, how many times? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Friends, how many times does he say his name? And what does it mean? He loves him. He loves him. I mean, if you had to pick one where you're like, okay, Jesus is just going to say, I'm done. It's this one, right? Like he's, he's killing Christians. He hates Jesus and he hurts the church. What you expect is Saul, judgment is here. Your life is over. I will do to you what you've done to my people. Jesus meets him on the road and says, Saul, Saul, he loves him, even him, even the scoffer. What kind of scandalous grace gives a scoffer a second chance? What kind of scandalous grace looks and says, you know what? I'm going to make one of the greatest enemies of the church into one of her brightest lights. It's Jesus. Only Jesus does that. Hear it again. The invitation to become wise is through love. The love of Jesus changes us. What rescues us from our foolishness is nothing short of the love of Jesus who can see our foolishness and love us at the same time. And then he says this. I love this. Rise into the city. You'll be told what to do. What does Jesus say to the scoffer? He says, I love you. And then he says this. I'm in charge now. I love you. I'm in charge. No more violence. No more hating God. No more hurting people. I'm the risen Lord. I love you. You have to change. I'm in charge. That's what he says to the scoffer. To the stubborn, he says, I love you. Release control. To the sluggard, he says, I love you. I'm all you need. To the simple, he says, I love you. Follow me. To the scoffer, he says, I love you. I'm in charge. Let's bring our time to a close with a question. If you think back on all we said, Martha, rich young ruler, Peter Paul, stubborn, simple, sluggard scoffer. Of the four examples, how many of the four do we hear about again in the Gospels? Three. There's one we never hear about again, and it's the rich young ruler. He gets no more words in the Bible. We don't know what happened to him. What's the difference between him and the other three? The difference is how they responded to wisdom. It would be easy, I think, to look and be like, okay, that's the really foolish person, and that one's just only kind of foolish, and it doesn't work like that. It's not uh, you only have hope if you are a small degree of foolish. In Jesus, it's no matter how deep or broken or pervasive the foolishness, any who turn, any who come, any who respond to wisdom's invitation can become wise. The rich young ruler denies that, but the other three respond. The other three move towards Jesus. There's fear of the Lord. They're lowered by the correction. They follow him. And here's what it does. It's so beautiful. It changes them. It changes them. You know the next time we hear about Martha? John 11, her brother who she loved dearly just died. And she's grieving. 
And she runs to Jesus for answers, not to correct him, not to teach him, to hear from him, to learn from him, to sit at his feet in her grief and be comforted by her words. And then she makes one of the clearest confessions of faith among all the disciples. I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God. Do you see what happened? The one who was foolish in her work is now wise in her grief. Peter is one of the first pastors of the first church. His belief grew deep, deep enough to pastor well, deep enough to love the church, deep enough to write books of the Bible, and one day deep enough to be asked again at the end of his life to deny Jesus. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down by the Roman Empire. They tried him and threatened him and interrogated him, and instead of denying Jesus, he was faithful. The same lips that betrayed Jesus spoke truth, and the promise that his belief was too shallow to keep one day proved true. Even if I have to die for you, I will not deny you. And he did. The one who was foolish in his boast became wise, even unto death. Paul stopped hating God and hurting people. He started loving Jesus and loving his church, and the greatest missionary in the history of Christianity is Paul. He planted churches, wrote books of the Bible. The one who persecuted Jesus and persecuted his people gave the rest of his life being persecuted for Jesus and being persecuted with his people. Ultimately, he too gave his life for Jesus. The one who is foolish in his hatred becomes wise in his love. How does that happen? How are people so dramatically changed from foolishness to wisdom? Jesus the invitation to become wise is through the love of Jesus that changes us. What rescues us from our foolishness is nothing short of the love of our Savior who can see our foolishness and love us at the same time. Let's pray. I'm going to invite you to just talk to God, friend, brother, sister. Just speak to him. Pray to him. And maybe that prayer would sound like this if I could just help facilitate it a bit. If you see the stubborn in you, quick to quarrel, easily offended, wise in your own eyes, would you just pray this prayer? Jesus, you love me. Help me release control. And don't... um, Don't say the last part stronger than the first one. Jesus, you love me. Help me release control. It matters first and just as much that you believe he loves you. If you see the sluggard in your life, you see the small surrenders in the wrong direction, you just pray this prayer, Jesus, you love me. Help me believe you're all I need. Help me make a bold surrender towards you, Jesus. If you see simple, shallow belief, quick to leave the path, would you pray this, Jesus, you love me. Oh, like Peter, you're not done with me. You've not grown tired of me. You have plans for me even. Jesus, you love me. Help me follow you. If you see the scoffer, you've hurt those around you with your anger, your control, even you. Could you?
you pray, Jesus, you love me. And you're in charge. If you love me, Jesus, you're in charge. God, thank you that we don't have to stay in our foolishness. I thank you that you have made a way through your love to change us, to rescue us. Would you help us? You know, it could all just be summarized like this. God, it could all just be summarized in a way that would honor you and encourage us is that you love fools. <laughs> and you've made a way through that love for fools to become wise. And we thank you. We'd be lost without you. Amen.